a quick word before we jump in. This will be our final episode of the year, and uh, what a year it has been. Uh, a tough year in a lot of respects, but for the mocking cast at least, it's been a year of enormous growth. Our listenership has more than doubled, and I can speak for my fellow co-hosts when I say that we're frankly a little overwhelmed by the response and the encouragement that we receive on a very on a frequent basis from people all around the world we're so happy to see with all that's going on uh, that this program is a source of nourishment and hope in a in a time that's very uncertain and wild uh, this is the time of year when we look to raise our budget and so I wanted to ask you to give to support Mockingbird. There's a lot that goes into not only this podcast, but the many other things we do. Uh, Our print magazine, our hyperactive website, our app, our conferences, you name it. Uh, We could really use the help. So if you're in a position to uh, offer that help, please do so. There'll be a link in the show notes to where you can do that. You know, it's really helpful to become a monthly donor. Uh, that helps us plan for the for the next year. But any sort of gift would be greatly welcomed. Thank you for listening. I hope you have a happy Advent and a very Merry Christmas. Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and R.J. Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. December. I can't believe it is finally here, or I wish it wasn't, or I'm glad it is. I don't know. I feel like we're hurtling through time and space. It's just weird. Very it's quickly. It's just weird. Yeah. Is it really still 2021? Uh, what What is it going to be 2022? What's happening? Uh, how are you guys? How is your Thanksgiving? Let's see. I've gotten through Thanksgiving. Thank God. My aunt came up to me Definitely. at the end of the like afternoon and just like squeezed my arm and was like, "We made it through," which was so sweet. Really? Yeah, and then Neil turns uh, eleven uh, in a few days, and then and then there's the anniversary of my parents' death on the ninth, and then on the eleventh, my brother gets married. So I've been calling wow. at hospitals to see if they'll just like preemptively hook you up to an IV that you can like walk around with. But they won't. I don't know what I'd put in the bag, honestly. You can, you can take There'd Christmas be a high shopping demand with you. This, this time of year, I think, <laughs> exactly. not just in Houston. A catheter, even? Like, no one will give me anything. So, yeah. RJ, how are you this mm. time of year? Yeah. Happy Advent, guys. Oh, my gosh. Happy, happy Advent. Advent. It be- Advent begins in the dark, and that's where you began. Oh so God, good. So <laughs> that's where this episode began. <laughs> oh. Uh, I had a great Thanksgiving. I mean, it was just so nice to have all my boys mm. together, have Jackson home from college who, um, Jackson is very loud, but I, I miss his loud energy. He's very large, I very loud that. and very large. He takes up a lot of space in our, in our home when he's home and I love it. And Marshall is so happy to have him home. And we played, um, watched a lot of football, ate a lot of food, played a lot of Settlers of Catan and Pictionary 
And we all went out, we, all five of us went out golfing together, which is ho- such a Florida thing to yeah. do. And um, Jamie brought uh, Marshall along. She's like, oh, we'll just do like three, four holes. And then we brought two cars. Mm-hmm. We're like, we'll go home. Um, he melted down on the second hole. Oh, my hole, gosh. Um, but then made it through 18. And wanted to play more, Marshall, just hacking wow. around. Jamie got Jamie Jamie got her steps yeah. in, you know. That, okay. that was her whole thing. Yeah. Um, but my favorite part of the entire um, afternoon was when she turned to me on like, I don't know, the 11th or 12th hole. She goes, are you guys always this bad? <laughs> bad at golf, you mean, or just bad yeah, in bad, general? Bad at golf. And I was like, yeah. yep, we're always this bad. She's like, that's awesome. She's like, I feel like I could play with you. I was like, you could definitely Aww. play with us because we we're terrible. I love that. Terrible. Yeah, you can find whole new hobbies, whole new things that you can suck at every, you know, that's exactly. what hobbies are. Right? That's, that's what, what hobbies hobby should be. I'm very thankful for that. That's what hobbies yes. should be, things that you're yes. really not yeah. very good at. Um, so it was uh, it was really fun. We had, a, we had a really nice time. We were in Washington, D.C. and did a lot of bike riding, and we, we played some Settlers of Catan ourselves. Catan Jr., oh, let me, let me oh. make yeah, that yeah, clear. Yeah. Mm. Um, what color watched, are you, Dave? Are you always the same color when you play? Do you have a, like a preferred color? Or? I uh, went orange because I'm a Protestant. But I go weird. orange too because I'm Dutch. <laughs> yes, orange all the way, baby. Yes. Plus UVA. You know, it's just, you can't do the Mets. I, you, I can't get away from orange. Me, in my life. The Mets. Me, I don't think I have Mets. a single orange piece of clothing, but maybe I should. Maybe that's I'm overcompensating. I did spend quite a few hours hanging out with the Beatles. Oh, sure. On Disney yeah. Plus. I haven't watched uh, any of that. Don't spoil. I mean, are there spoilers? Well, I mean, kind of a mammoth. The whole thing is a spoiler in the sense that, well, first of all, it does feel like hanging out with them because it's tedious and it's a bit boring. And there's there's a lot. They're waiting for John to show up or George oh. leaves for a second. And, and it's... Um, you know, it, there, there's not a lot happening for a lot of it, but then they play music and it's joyful. And you see, you just, a lot of the stories that you've been told about the Beatles breaking up, it turns out are only partially true, just like every mm. story in life. Um, and this, no doubt, this has its own, uh, you know, point of view, but it's one of these things, you know, I always think about as like, we don't know the end of the story, you know, mm. like the, or, or or we do know the end mm-hmm. of the story as, as as Christians. But but when we look at our individual lives and we think my everything's gone down the tubes, I'm this is the worst thing that's ever mm-hmm. happened. We don't actually know the end of the story, yeah. and um, in that sense, and we interpret too quickly. And I think that uh, we see that with the Beatles. Like mm. it was, they were kind of having fun. They knew exactly what was going on, that the project had sort of run its course, mm. but they still loved each other. I mean, there would be acrimony mm. and, and money uh, and uh, sort of rights and stuff like that. But for the large part, it was just for a, for a, a music uh, nerd, obsessive, shall we say, like me, it was a kind of a Christmas gift, an early Christmas gift. So that's, that's awesome. great. Get back. It's not for everyone. A lot of people will be like, whoa, this is boring. But then, like, there's flashes. It's like life. It's very boring with flashes of uh, extreme beauty and also uh, acrimony. This one thing we also watched as um, I watched with my boys was 8-Bit Christmas, this new movie. It's on HBO Max. It's like a Christmas story, but about the 80s, about kids who were dying to get a Nintendo. Nice. And all the things they're willing to do to get a Nintendo. And it's it's delightful. It sounds I'll like say a- that. It's, it's Stranger guys, Things it, it, for Christmas. It's a, it's got a little bit of that vibe mixed with sort of a Christmas story. Oh my gosh, I love um, that. You'll get all the references, but one of the things that they you you see in that in that movie is they go Christmas shopping for all their shopping. One day they go to the mall. Mm. They're, they're like oh outside gosh. Chicago, 
And it's a mall that is jam-packed yeah. with people the way malls used to be on Christmas. And there's a food court and we're going to go totally here first. I totally forgot and about this. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And it, it got me thinking about malls. Um, uh, partially because I also ended up going into our, there's one mall still standing here. And I went there to get for a shoe store. And it was just like exactly what you'd think. It was a, it was a mausoleum. Yeah. It was, no one was there. It was, Except people getting their steps in. Just, just people walking around in a temperature controlled so, environment. So Literally the mall, only so pairs, okay, pairs of old ladies, pairs of old ladies walking around. That's you know, true. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's also like two thirds of the stores are closed. Yeah. If not, if not five, six yeah. of them. Yeah. But that was what's going through my mind when I read this piece, this first piece we're going to talk about called Mallstalgia, Mallstalgia by Jason Tebby. That just flows off on, the tongue. <laughs> on Tropics of Meta, this is what he says. He says, I'm not the only person feeling Mallstalgia these days. Taylor Swift's longing uh, Coney Island song featuring sad dad rockers The National from her Evermore album has the lines, because we were like the mall before the internet. It was the one place to be, the mischief, the gift-wrapped suburban dreams. Mallstalgia. Uh, if the internet killed the mall, it's ironic that there's a whole online industry documenting dead and abandoned shopping malls. This nostalgia can perhaps be chalked up to the fact that the generations most shaped by mall culture have hit middle age and are thinking about their own mortality. But I think there's something deeper going on here, he writes. Our idea of what the mall represents has been radically softened. Malls used to be a stand-in for the shallow culture of consumerism. Hence, uh, alternative indie rock artists like of the day like Mojo Nixon writing songs like Burn Down the Malls. Little did we know then that much worse was coming down the line. <laughs> While the mall was meant merely to be a centralized location for money to be blown on consumerist, uh, consumerist floatsim, young people repurposed it to their own ends. We had to because there was literally nowhere else in public to go, especially in small towns. However, we soon learned it was much more efficient to have the shopping without the added cost of social space. And so now the packages come right to our doors. No more sales clerks to chat with at the register, just invisible warehouse workers and delivery drivers being pushed to their absolute limits. Mm. When, when Gen Xers like me talk about the mall, maybe we sound like the old timers we used to roll our eyes at. So to temper my complaints, I will say that beer, cars, television, coffee, and food in general are, are all far better than they were in my youth. But we have continued to lose a sense of public space, of shared community, and the mall oddly helped preserve it. He finishes by saying, in adulthood, I moved to New Jersey, perhaps the cradle of mall culture and a place where some malls still limp on. Appropriately, the abandoned Sears at the local mall serves as a COVID vaccination site. We find ourselves in a strange time when capitalism no longer needs the mall, but we still do. Hmm. Did you guys spend time in malls? Oh my gosh. Did Sarah, I spend time I, in malls? <laughs> yes. I mean, some of my favorite memories. Well, I have so many beautiful memories at Christmas of all of the cousins I always talk about on the podcast. Like they would all come in from, you know, the Delta and we would make these huge like halls and we would go see Santa Claus and we would go to a movie and our dads would be in charge, which was always wild, you know? Um, I mean, and, and I have memories of being a teenager and like making the, you know, making a long list and it was like this store and then this store and then this store. And it was like the first place you really had a sense of independence, I think, 
you know? Mm-hmm. It's it's funny. We took our kids this summer to um to Dollywood to the we did Dollywood and then we did the water park. And it was I realized the first time that our um oldest has had that chance to walk around by himself that mm-hmm. I I would have had in the mall, you know? So it's yeah, and it's it's so I will say we are one of the few places, and I was listening to a piece about this recently that still has a very healthy mall. We have a couple of healthy malls in Houston, but we have Memorial City Mall near us, and part of what is keeping malls alive is they're putting in higher end stores, and, uh-huh. and so um, which is like weird to me too, right? Because like if I'm gonna go to the mall, I need to go to Claire's, you know, and get like questionably cheap earrings, but. <laughs> Spencer's. Yeah, exactly. Oh my God, Spencer's. Uh, it's Spencer's so gifts. Long. It's still. It still exists. Spen- it's at. It's one of the five stores that's open at our local uh, mall. Yeah. Pilgrimage. Um, lots of lots of lava lamps. Yeah, yeah, but it's so we still have like I don't really. It's weird. I don't really shop there, but we still have the experience, and our kids love it of like walking through a hopping mall. Um, wow. And it's like, like I'm going uh, tomorrow actually, because uh, we're going to the American girl doll store at our mall and mm. I'm super pumped and it's fun. Like, I don't know. It's like, thank you for this story, Dave. Cause I'm kind of in a sad place. Like I definitely like, uh, get thee to a, a mall. feeling it. My mom's Christmas decorations earlier, held them and cried. And like, I am, I've been kind of excited about tomorrow, but not able to understand why. And I'm like, oh, it's like this beautiful, like piece of comfort and nostalgia to me. So mm, thank gotta go you. to the gallery. Yeah. I'm, Hit the I gallery, Sarah. I know, the yeah. gallery is, fa- I mean, like we have great malls in Houston, you know, yeah, go so. ice skating, but Jackson, Mississippi, honey, you're getting your COVID shot at the mall. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I know what you're talking about, Dave. Yes. I'm familiar. Mm. What about you, Arch? A little bit, yeah, not, not, a, I mean, I had a weird uh, experience growing up because I was, you know, in middle school, I was in boarding school in New York and, and we didn't really do malls there. And then I went to three different high schools, um, but a little bit. There was, yeah, there was the West Farms Mall in like, I remember that distinctly in like West Hartford, Farmington, Connecticut area and would go with my um, family every so often. And and I know I talked about my mom last week, but I definitely, I, I remember enjoying this, it's going to sound terrible, I liked shopping with my mom because she was... Just like because she was um, good to us, and like with my dad, it was like we're gonna go, we're going, we're killing something, it needs to be as cheap as possible. Let's be as quick as we possibly can. Let's get the hell out of here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, but my mom was like, "Are you sure you like it? Do you like it? You're the one who has to wear it. Do we need to go to another store? I'm happy to go as many as many stores as you want to go to to find the clothes that you feel comfortable wearing." You know, and so I do remember having fun um, shopping with my mom and just feeling like important you know and mm. and uh you know that back when i cared what i looked like and was trying to you know impress the ladies at uh you know in high school it was it was nice so yes i do have some fond funny. memories Sweet. of the mall i don't think i remember my dad going to the mall with us once <laughs> i literally can't picture uh, your dad in the mall yeah peasy there the was mall. there was a movie store no that's not true there was a movie store at one of the malls near us in i think south carolina mm-hmm. and he would go just there you know how he would know the quickest possible way to yeah. get there and the quickest possible way to get and out exactly where to park to yeah. like you know it's basically his idea of hell but i have great memories of going to the gap with oh, my mom. Gap. yes uh, I remember going to Sam Goody and yes. going to the food court, and that was when Chick Fil A really wasn't everywhere. So there was a couple, there was a mall yeah. of Chick Fil A when I was a kid. That and was you're a, like, was are we going to the Chick Fil A mall? 
You know, like, <laughs> yes. it's like... But I remember there being like, you know, volunteer fashion shows like oh, that kids yes. would be part of or like choir recitals and sometimes like... Have you guys been watching Physical? Have you watched Physical no, on Apple Plus? <laughs> no. It totally takes place in a mall. There's yeah. like a, a, a jet, what's it called? Aerobics, you know, studio in a mall. Yeah. I mean, it just, the mall was this place and it just really does not exist anymore. Where well, every... they're they're outdoor shopping places, no, but, right? There are like, but it's like it, the mall. Not was, in the same the mall way. Was this place where no. everything was possible, you know? <laughs> and even if it was raining outside, I mean, that's I hate those outdoor places because like there's something about like you're all in a building together. Your show choir might perform. Would you like a piece of Sabaro pizza? Do you need a homecoming dress? Like all of this, right, could happen yeah. in this same space. This is why, like, and I know everyone, I know all the reasons why we've got to stop being so consumeristic and we have to stop buying things and we're going to kill the planet, but isn't that already happening? But anyway, <laughs> I love consumerism. Like, it was a huge part of my childhood and it's super comforting to me now. And, like, everybody else can recycle. I don't know, you know? like Retail I just, therapy, baby. I love it. Well, gosh, I remember, remember KB Toy Stores? Oh, Whoa, yeah. That yes. was a big, sharper that was a image. Big deal. Yeah. Yeah, go and go sit, sit in the like uh, the the massage chair. Yes. That were, so like, what we're saying is money to buy those. Exactly, three thousand dollar massage chair. Yeah. What we're talking about though is all three of us have very positive memories associated yeah. with the mall. Yeah, we do. And e- we even do. if it's not like the overwhelming, you know, memory of our youth, it is. Uh, there is something about the. This is sort of another piece that's lamenting the lack of connection. For so sure. much neon. But, the the atom you know, atomization of, of our culture and you know the, the it's uh, gosh it's got to be another sort of endorsement for church life I think on some level mm. um, but more shopping uh, at church <laughs> more gift shops more. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know if, I don't know if that's the option but I think it's like it's a is place to saying, go and Dave? see people it is, it's a place to go and see people for sure it's a place yeah, to go is, and see and is. how many people's like what Taylor Swift always talks about she's sort of conjuring up is like it was a place where you would go and see girls. Like, that's what I remember. Oh, it's like, that's sure. where you knew that the girls in your class were hanging yes. out there before it was, there were parties before there were any other ways to sort of interact without parents around. It was, you'd sort of travel in little packs and maybe I mean, I still remember one thing and run away. Like, I still remember like the TLC album, Crazy Sexy Cool had come out and my cousin Anna from the Delta. So like big deal. She would come into town. We'd make a list first stop Applebee's, you know, that kind of thing. And I still remember that there was this like plaid shiny crop top that I would wear with like exposed midriff. I don't know how I got out of the house. Sarah. And overalls over it with like one down. Such a good look. Huh. Such a huh. good look. Yeah, okay. what so was Debbie I Gibson. Wearing? And like so I Debbie would Gibson. roll in there like she's here. You know, like, <laughs> just like oh my God. <laughs> well, talking about shopping, uh, we're going to move to another piece that's uh, written for our website, for Mockingbird, by Sarah Hinlicky Wilson. Uh, really, uh, she's a, Sarah is a uh, ELCA pastor in uh, Tokyo, I believe, Whoa. in Japan. And so she cool. writes this. She's the title of the, um, and she always uh, has very pithy titles. The title of her post is "I Hate Presents." <laughs> <laughs> and she said this, she says, I used to love the giving of presents just as much as the receiving. And parents of little children probably love Christmas even more than the children do for the sheer gift of being able to give and for beholding afresh the pleasure of receiving without jaded eyes. But somehow over the years, the joy in both giving and receiving has all drained away. 
there isn't much love for presents left in me. I think I was the one who spoiled it first. One year, I found the perfect Christmas gift for a friend. This was when I was well into my 20s. I was so incredibly pleased at finding something so perfect that, frankly, I lorded it over her. I spent all of December telling her how much she was going to love it. She probably would have if I hadn't persecuted her with such pressure to be amazed. It didn't go well when she gave it to her. And that was my introduction to how the demand for gratitude becomes its own tool of abuse. Mm. I have counted hours and days and weeks for an acknowledgement of a gift that I thought was a showstopper. I have self-righteously sided with Jesus in indignation at the nine lepers who never got around to thanking him without noticing that Jesus didn't revoke the cure or chase the lepers down or even remind them to say thank you. He just let them go. And of course, at the same time, I failed to say thank yous of my own and resented the burden of gratitude placed on me by others. Because if you're going to be self-righteous, you may as well be a hypocrite too. I've come to the conclusion that the problem with presents is that they're no longer free and no longer gifts. Presents have become for me a law, and nothing wrecks a gift faster than making a law out of it. So I ran a little experiment recently to see if it was even possible anymore to recapture the magic. I sent a gift for no particular reason or occasion to someone who was not expecting it. I won't presume to say whether it succeeded from the recipient's point of view, but at least on my end, sending that present gave me joy for the first time in ages. I gave the gift because I wanted to, not because I had to. It turns out that freedom is essential to a gift being a gift. Then she shifts into preacher mode. She says, God's gift of Christ really is a free gift, unasked for and unlooked for, which means that if we aren't continually preaching the gospel as a surprise, a truly new thing every time it's extended to a sinner and not a trap or a contract or a new law, then we haven't preached the thing rightly at all. Truth be told, I don't really hate presents, not when they're actual presents. Just to be free of all those laws would be the nicest Christmas present I could imagine. That's great. Yeah, she's, she's a great writer. I, I've been thinking about um, a lot, this thing that my boss, Jason Evans, said to me, my uh, old boss, he's now in a, a new job, but um, and it was something like, like the role of ministry, and I may have said this here before, but it's like uh, tell stories, throw parties, give gifts or something. Mm. That's good. And um, yesterday, we I had our, our final lunch with uh, with my students. We do lunch on Wednesdays. And we actually had our, our final service on Monday night, you know, until the next semester. And I bought everyone, so everyone gets a Christmas gift. And they all got copies of uh, Every Moment Holy. Do you guys know Every Moment Holy? Yeah, it's, it's well done. It's so yeah. great. So... Um, I well known. Okay, thanks. Um, no, it's not. It's like a, it's sort of like mo- I have it's never like heard a of it. modern. It's like modern prayers. Like yeah, prayers yeah, yeah. For it's beautiful. Waiting at the doctor's office. It's beautiful. That sort of stuff. Yeah. So I got. So they all got a copy of that. They got a little ornament. They got an advent calendar. And I had a couple students show up who literally I've seen like once this semester, like at the end. And they didn't like they had no. They just wanted to show up for lunch, right? They didn't know what was happening. And I had thrown in extra gifts just like on a whim and it was Mm -hmm. so um it was such a blessing to me to be able to hand them gifts even though like uh, you know they kind of walk up like oh like i'm here i mean dave you know this like posture of like coming back right yeah we haven't seen you know 
And and just to, and there you know I don't pay for you these have to gifts be, like my ministry. You're, you're pays Mr. Magoo. Them. Oh, well, you haven't been here for a while. I didn't right. notice. Right? Yeah, I know. You're just like, <laughs> hey. Oh, I saw you just the other hey, day. Hey, <laughs> how's it going? But like, I don't know. There was something for me super um, like I found as a relief, right? That I could just give this to them, and that there was no transactional nature for me behind it. Um, and like such a blessing in my ministry and that they seem like really surprised, you know, like, oh my gosh, like, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I love this idea. I, I don't, I don't give gifts with an expectation of something. So like I, I, and I don't know if that's like cultural, like my parents never did either. Um, so I'm never, I don't know. I, and that's like, not to say like, I'm like somehow more evolved I just it never occurs to me like I just hmm. it feels like that thing were you forced to write thank you notes yeah I totally had to write thank you I mean I was a southern family had to write thank you notes but but pe- people you know not writing them back my mother would often say to me like it doesn't matter if people write a thank you note to me like I'm, I don't think about that or worry about it so mm. yeah I don't know that's it's it's I mean I think that I'd still rather receive gifts even if there's slight strings attached from most people though I have d- definitely received gifts from people that I uh if I'd known what was entailed uh and how little of a gift it actually was I would have would have walked run screaming in the other direction <laughs> but um for the most part, I like the, gr- the gratuity. I like to give gifts. I enjoy sort of like blowing my kids' minds with gifts that they weren't yeah. expecting. I find that to be a truly joyful th- thing. Um, yeah. And, and some, it always gets a little sad when there's so much going on at this time of year that you don't feel like you can put enough effort into it. Um, and that's, prob- that's probably a little bit of a liability for people in ministry. Where oh, yes. Gosh. You know, who, of course. Yes. Uh, that we're, we're we're sort of limping to the f- yeah fin- not sort of we're definitely limping yeah. to the finish I mean, line. Everyone and when it kind of is though, yeah, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, maybe a, a little bit more, but at this right. time of year, you can just feel the anxiety level, yeah. you know, rising, and especially now yeah. with the uh, I don't know the supply chain crisis. Oh my gosh! You know, will my gift be sitting right. on, a, on on a ship? You know, outside right. the Long Beach Harbor. Um, RJ, what about you? I don't. I, I'm like Sarah. I don't give gifts with an expectation of there being like a huge um, response or something. I think the the law maybe for me was earlier in our marriage. Um, I think I don't. Know, this is probably maybe more me, but Jamie and I also. I think trying to give gifts that were like really, I don't know thoughtful but also like kind of responsible a little bit you know like i think our first christmas i gave like we liked to camp back then i think i gave jamie like a leatherman or something which is like this two i mean i gave Arjun. her more than just that but that was one of the things i gave her goodness gracious and that, yeah, yeah exactly oh thank you i'm outing myself here um and i care what she gave me but at some point we just both looked at each other and we're like yeah that was okay that was fun but what we really want is stuff we actually want that we feel too guilty buying for ourselves. Yeah. You know, Jamie's like, yeah. all That's I want. That's the sweet spot. I just want jewelry and handbags. Yes. And I'm like, yeah. all I want is like stupid electronics yeah. and, and I don't know, stuff for my car. Yeah. You know, that I would and feel guilty. And all I want are action figures. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so it became, it did become more fun when we just started uh, buying our each other and our kids stuff that they just really, really wanted, but just seemed, uh, just seemed frivolous. Yeah. You know, that's, yeah. that's when it was that's when it was actually well then it's a like gift. total it, it, nonsense or it's there's this there's a there's a playfulness playfulness we're yeah. back to playfulness again yeah i uh, i'm 
I'm putting together as we speak the Mockingbird gift guide, which is one of my favorite things to do every year because it's just a, it's totally silly though peppered with some serious things, and I I just can't tell you how much fun it's been. Aww. Well, any other thoughts on, on 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 gifts? Because I tell you, the gift I want more than anything is a, one of those Thera guns. It's a sort of it's oh, expensive. Yeah. Those like massage yeah. gun things. It's expensive, but uh, in a, a, that I would never buy it for myself. But that's a must-have for soapbox. But that's like Whoa, for hey, gotta have it <laughs> when you when you. Those you muscles do. have to be massaged, you know. <laughs> well, as Jacob Smith says, it, it, the only thing that penetrates more deeply is the Holy Spirit. Oh my <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that'll be erased. Um, <laughs> Absolutely <let's>, not. <laughs> I just, Jake had said that, and then I just, as it was coming out of my mouth, I was like, wait, what am I saying? <laughs> oh my gosh. I was like, okay, um, it, this is a more serious one, and this is from, but it also has to do with gift giving and, the, you know, differences in sort of our times versus that of our children, and it's by Esau Macaulay. Uh, in the Times, and he saw who's an Anglican uh, priest um, who wrote the book Reading While Black. Um, uh, he wrote, I grew up poor. How am I supposed to raise my middle class kids? This is what he says. The difference between my childhood Thanksgivings, for instance, this is written right before Thanksgiving, and those of my kids is the world that existed around the holiday. My mother was diagnosed with a brain tumor when I was in elementary school. She couldn't work full time, so we lived mostly on government assistance. Violence, complicated school, parties, and sporting events. As far back as I can remember, I've known how to look into a person's eyes and tell the difference between someone who is willing to fight and someone who is comfortable with much worse. But I now find myself in a difficult, bewildering position. My children do not know how to read a room, observe the set of a jaw, or assess the determination of a glare. They wave at strangers and are apt to start up conversations, assuming that the other person bears them goodwill. They speak about college and futures as lawyers and doctors and teachers. They open the refrigerator and expect to find food. And I sometimes find that I don't know how to be their father. I can tell them stories of growing up without enough to eat and moving from home to home because we couldn't afford to pay our rent. I can speak to them about having classmates killed. I can teach them about living in areas defined by redlining. These sound like the things experienced by a character in a play, though, not a part of a life lived by their father. My children do not understand my world, and I do not understand theirs. I do not know what it's like to be a child waking up in a home with two college graduates at the helm. I do not know what it's like to expect birthday parties, Christmas trees, and tons of presents. I do not know what it's like to spend so much time unafraid. Yet I don't want to fall into the trap of treating poverty as some kind of learning experience. And yet, I cannot help believing that my children have lost something, the determination born of suffering. I wish that I could give them that feeling. It formed the background of my pastor's sermons in the black churches of my youth. That suffering was a unifying factor in all my deepest friendships. Still, I can teach my children the most important lesson my mother taught me. Our circumstances do not determine our worth. My kids are not in some ontologically different category than poor kids. If they're ever tempted to look down upon others, I remind them to see the face of their father on the visages of the poor. You almost wonder if you could like capitalize father there. I know. So mm -hmm. it's not in the New York Times, honey, but yeah. 
<laughs> well, hey, the fact that he's writing New York Times at all is kinda, amazing. amazing. A I mean, oddity. It's just it's a it's. I loved this piece. I sent it to to you because I just I found it to be so powerful for for several different reasons. I mean, it struck me. I I have friends who grew up in very different um, economic circumstances than the ones that they're raising children in, and. Mm -hmm. I think we can underestimate the fear and anxiety that that comes with that, even if you're, you know, so much better off, right? Um, and and also, I just, it's, it's, I mean, clearly a lot of this is also, you know, a, a, an issue of race, um, and I think that's really powerful to read. Um, but I found something actually really relatable and just, I mean, I hate to use the phrase imposter syndrome, um, but it is this kind of idea of like this world that we're inhabiting that we feel like we don't belong in. Mm -hmm. and I think it's so common to experiences. And and the, the, the last thing that I found incredibly powerful about this that is always a thing that moves me um, is that I just feel like we don't know we assess each other so much physically and we don't know what's happening internally, you know, and I think there's so much grace we have to offer one another. I mean, I, I th it's funny. I thought of this piece with a gift piece, Dave, because um, I, I, part of the reason I don't assume that people have to send me thank you notes and, and honestly, part of the reason I hope people don't assume I'm going to send thank you notes, especially in this season of my life is that I just, I don't possess the ability to do it right now, you know? Mm. And so I kind of love this idea of like, he, I mean, Esau is incredibly accomplished, like in every way one can be accomplished. And, um, and yet he's navigating this world that feels very unfamiliar to him and raising children in the midst of it. So I just thought it was a wonderful, wonderful piece. But all of us have big differences between the way that we grew up and the way that our yes. families are growing up. And even if we don't have a family, the way that sort of life feels today. And I think that that's, um, I think it, it, it is part of what attributes to the imposter syndrome that I, I mean, I believe imposter syndrome is one of these great um, redundancies because it's not a syndrome. Everyone has it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's not a, it's a universal trait that everyone thinks that they don't quite, quite belong as much as that other person. There's the great Beatles, you know, I, I think I've told the story before, but there's the great story about the Beatles when uh, Ringo leaves the band during the making of the White Album. Did you remember this story, guys? And like the, uh, he, John comes and visits him and says, please come back to the band, you know, and Ringo says, well, I just, you, the three of you are so tight and, you know, I just have always felt like I'm on the outside. And John says, what? I thought it was you three. Mm. And then, and then George comes, and they have the same conversation. You three seem so tight, but but I'm really on the outside. And George says, "What? I thought it was you three. <laughs> and Paul, needless to say, the exact same thing. Yeah. Ringo tells that story, and that's the inner circle of the inner circle, right. the Beatles, yeah. you know. And here you have, um, you can't even. I, everyone's got this imposter syndrome. Completely. But it, when it relates to your own children and your own, you'll feel like you're almost like an outsider in your own family. That's a, uh, I don't know. That's a. I was just at Thanksgiving with my, my wife's family, and it's it's wonderful and warm, but you're still, it's not exactly this kind of Thanksgiving I grew up with. Right. But it's the type my, my kids are growing right. up with. And so, right. anyway, sure. what, RJ, how did, this, how did this hit you? Uh, well, one thing it did make me think of, just on that level, there was a piece in, I think it was This American Life, about 
kind of 30-something black men thinking back to their childhood and about how much they loved the Dukes of Hazard, and all they wanted was a toy car of the General Lee. But if you know what the General Lee looks like, it's got a big like Confederate flag mm-hmm. on the roof, mm-hmm. and they just didn't care. Mm-hmm. They had no, and they look back and they're like, how can it be that I, as a, a black child in America, all I wanted was a thing of the General the General Lee, and they were kind of wrestling wrestling through that. It was an interesting piece. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny, you were talking about 8-Bit, uh, which I haven't seen, I didn't, and I, I saw it, it's on HBO Max or something, right? Isn't that right? That's, yep. Yeah. I haven't watched it, but it's funny you were talking about looking for the Nintendo, because I remember when I was in boarding school and I walked into one of my teacher's rooms, because um, at night, like, we would hang out sometimes at our various teacher's rooms and watch TV and whatever, like a bunch of us, and one of them had just gotten a Nintendo Entertainment, a Nintendo, like the, the original NES, and I said, oh my God, you got a Nintendo? That's so cool. And he looked at me in front of a bunch of people and said, well, why don't you get your parents to get you one? You're rich. Um, and I was, uh, wow. it really, it really hurt my feelings. Yeah. And it also kind of shook my self-perception because yeah. I was like, wait, am I, am I, I think I was 11 or 12 years old at the time. I was like, am I rich? Wait, am, wait, am I rich? Yeah. Because when I thought about rich, I thought about the Beverly Hillbillies. You know, mm-hmm. I thought about like the gigantic mansion yeah. in Beverly Hills. You know, I didn't think about like the, the pretty nice suburban house in right. New Canaan, Connecticut. Right. But mm-hmm. the reality was I was rich and I sort of didn't know it. And sure. I had to like, it was, I talked to my parents about it. It was really strange. But at the same time, um, even though we were, you know, we weren't rich, 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 but we were definitely upper middle class. Um, my dad always made us feel guilty about everything having to do with money. <laughs> Constantly. I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh. That's the way you said it was uh, quite a setup. Um, <clears throat> yes, I think that that's you, you. You felt like you had uh, not enough, even though well, because he by the world standards, he, because yeah. he would say things like yeah. that. He would be like, you know, well, you know, if only we didn't have four sons, maybe we could do a little bit more, <laughs> you know, or something. Really, money doesn't grow on trees, guys. Money doesn't grow on trees. And your dad, um, just like your dad, was an immigrant. He was an immigrant, so, like, and, his, whole, and his dad, there's cultural, a whole other thing, yeah. right? Because he's looking at the way we're growing up yeah, compared to how he grew course. up, and he's probably thinking that, like, he had to really fight tooth and nail of to course. get out of where he was with a dad who had a, you know, elementary school education. So it'd be fascinating to talk to him about that. But um, but now, like, we have so much less less money than my family did growing up, comparatively speaking, but I try so hard not to put any of that, like, guilt on my kids, you know, I, tr- I try to just like live life joyfully and, and freely and not with the sense of, of sort of um, guilt or control or, or scarcity that, that I, you know, even I, I think I told this story, my, um, my youngest son a few years ago went to go spend like a week with my dad um, up in like Long Island and they, uh, they spent the week together and they went to a fair and they did whatever. And he got back and I said, how was it with Opa? Um, he said, oh, it was great. And he paused a beat. He goes, Opa complains a lot about how much things cost. And I was like, yes, he does. And I was like, oh, my God, he's still Aww. doing it with, you know. So we had a little bond. But anyway, that's that's the most I can um, relate to this is just uh, thinking back about the messages that I got about who I was and what was possible. And, and, and I wonder, it'll be interesting to talk to my kids when they grow up about the messages they received, well, you know, about well, who we were. Yeah. Sure. I mean, it makes me – there's and, like, how kids – you know, Esau's children will have their own versions of, of their own stories about how they interface yeah. with him, about his history and who he is now. And, yes. you know, I mean, a teacher at our school pulled me aside and said, you know, um, 
Annie has told us several times that if she misbehaves at school, then um, her dad will get fired from his job and you all will lose your house. <gasps> and oh I was gosh. like, what? Heavy. <laughs> what was that? So like, if Annie, you know, does anything remotely out of line, we will be homeless and without a job. Mm. And so it is pretty fascinating, like the way that they kind of, you know, we, we, I mean, I love being a parent because we think we can like impart or like we have these like, you know, like existential crises like regularly about what are they learning and how are they getting it from us. They're having their own existential crisis, you know, like it's just mm. like, I don't know. Just funny. That's I, one of the, they are. And I, one of the lines here that struck me is this line when he says, my kids are not in some ontologically different category yeah. than poor kids. Yeah. Now, that's a that cuts both ways, I think, because a lot of people would say that, that you would look at, if you are if you do grow up with less, you look at rich mm-hmm. kids and you say, well, they don't have, they don't suffer. Mm-hmm. And mm. um, that's not true. You know, they, well, they suffer in different ways. Well, that's why I asked how, how old his kids were, because, you know, every, um, I, I know what it is to be a parent to want to save your kids from all suffering and, and uh but it, you can't do it. Yeah. You just, it's, you know, give me a, it doesn't matter. You know, right. You're just going through middle school, they going through high school, applying for college. Like It may be yes. different. It may be different, yeah, yeah, yeah. but there's yeah, no, it's, it's, it's unavoidable. Yeah. It's unavoidable. But it's, that, but that's a bedrock. I mean, <laughs> frankly, it's a bedrock. RJ, you're going to laugh, but it's a bedrock of low anthropology. Everybody is suffering in some way. Always be sell. Always be closing, days <laughs> all. Be, always be closing, give me a baby. Break. Okay, I'm sorry. It's what's on my mind. Um, I love it, Dave. What was I going to say? It. Oh, by the way, you know, it's like I had this conversation with someone recently because you know, if, uh, uh, just growing up in what very affluent areas or affluent adjacent areas, um, but without ever having yeah, much yeah, money, yeah. my family, uh, we were talking about like what are the things. What are the linguistic tells and uh, of, of that kind of community? And you know that you're in a rich community if the word rich is completely out of bounds. Like, That's right. Yeah. Never, ever, yeah. never talk about money ever. <laughs> never talk about money ever. Oh and if, if someone says rich, like the whole room goes quiet. Right. Like it's a, you could talk about wealth. You can talk about affluence. You cannot say rich. Yeah. I mean, well, that's what happened to me. You, like when you don't I was say drapes, you yeah. say curtains. Like, oh, you, you don't what? say couches, you say sofas. Yeah, like oh my it's gosh. A, somebody corrected me a few weeks ago because because I said couch, like in our neighborhood. They were. You like, don't say lobby. So you say she's still alive. <laughs> you don't say lobby. <laughs> <laughs> like okay. Sarah, you don't say lobby. You say narthex. Oh my! I'm just gosh. kidding. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. You don't it's, say it's, cafeteria. It's, you say refectory. Okay. <laughs> but this idea, this that Esau is going out on a limb to say, because a lot of people would say that we are in ontologically different categories by virtue of our race, by virtue of our socioeconomic class, yeah. and that, and or by virtue of our gender, whatever it is. Yeah. There are differences in our experience. Yeah. There are, yeah. you know, structural, systemic things that we are diff- subject to. But no one is exempt. I get that. But it is a one of the things I think that's so powerful about what he's saying is actually there's a through line of suffering and a through line of 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 need. I mean, I would the only thing I would say to that, Dave, is I think we underestimate, especially as white people, the daily onslaught of just being black in the world and violence that comes with it. Of our people, you know, our my especially my female friends are like, who's going to say what about my hair? Just when I want to go to the grocery store. You know, Mm. I think we underestimate like how often that is like an interface that has to happen and how exhaustive that is, you know, and, and we're seeing, I mean, he's not, it's, it's an interesting thing because we're seeing in research, like it, you know, kind of across every category, 
medically speaking, there's a lot higher rates of illness and cancer and infant mortality and, uh, you know, all these things. And, and a lot of it's attributed to just daily stress. Mm. So to live under that for your whole life and then to raise kids that are maybe are not living under that in the same way. I mean, I, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I don't... Oh, I, I get that. I, I want to... What I want to say, though, is that the suffering that he has experienced that has produced this incredible works like what he's saying right now mm-hmm. in this article is... Um, it's like this paradox of, 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 of just life in the world that suffering, um, no one is exempt from it. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when the, 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 if you, if you, I mean, I'm always thinking the future of Christian witness in America is, is almost definitely coming from the black community. Like that's yeah. God shows up in the wilderness to do yeah. with the, with the suffering. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and so you don't want to say, okay, therefore it's good that suffering exists or right. that pe- more people should suffer. But he's sort of Im- kind of saying, well, I'm still grateful it's hu- that it it's hu- made me is. who I am. Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. And I, th- I think that in fact, the lack of suffering that, that you have in a privileged community creates a different it's a different type of. Uh, it takes it. T- it creates a, another kind of like uh, you know suicidal yeah. unhappiness. Yeah. Um, that is. Uh, I t- just. I'm just trying to say that in order to to love people um, and not put them into ontological categories, I ha- the only way I figured out how to do it is to say that God loves people and also that everyone is subject to all sorts of contingencies and painful experiences that. Um, no matter where where they're born, yeah. um, and that applies to someone living in the outskirts of a Chinese village as much as it does, I think, I hope, to yeah, an idiot Dutch kids outside of New York City, Hello. New Canaan, Connecticut. Hello. You know, like <laughs> yeah, I mean, I... rich, rich little beautiful, uh, you know, blonde-haired white uh, Dutch children with named R.J. Heyman. <laughs> I'm like sitting here, like surrounded by our Christmas presents that I've got to like you know pack up for people because i love to shop and because consumerism is like one of my favorite things and i bought these tea towels and i just bought everyone they had and i have no idea who i'm giving them to but i love them so much because they just say sometimes blessings are also bullshit (laughs) sarah there you go we've got our title everybody Oh, man. Well, let's go to the next thing, which is something and the last thing. I did not realize this, though I kind of knew. RJ, I bet you knew. America's Gambling Addiction is Metastasizing by Stephen Marsh in The Atlantic. Oh, no. Um, gambling... Gambling has become one of the defining pleasures of our time, the perfect accompaniment to an era of high-risk rigged economies and a looming sense of collapse once there was las vegas now there's a las vegas in every phone you can bet on almost anything today elections literary prizes if you watch sports regularly you probably feel as i do that the games have become interruptions in a more or less constant barrage of wagering promotion gambling is swallowing sports this has to do with the fact that in 2018, the Supreme Court struck down the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act, opening the door to online sports betting across 21 states. As a direct result, sports betting revenues grew 69% from 2019 to 2020, and another 270% in the first quarter of 2021. What? What? Okay, sorry. I'll just continue. repeat that. Another 270% during the first quarter I'm of in the 2021. I'm the wrong industry. Continue. 
I mean, we knew that before this, okay? Exactly. There's also the you episode chose where poorly. we ruthlessly rag on RJ. There was, a, there was for a time a kind of balance, weighing the public good against desires of the market. Then the market won. For one thing, attempts at repression, like the war on alcohol or drugs, often did more harm than good. And regulated markets allowed those substances to be controlled in a much more sensible way through law enforcement. For another, greed has a tendency to win against any other consideration. The end result is the same. You do you. If it kills you, that's on you. He goes on to say, gambling produces corruption the way salt water produces rust. You can fight it for a while, but it wins in the end. Gambling is now firmly ensconced in the sports matrix. The same companies own the right to broadcast the games, the journalism about the games, the betting markets for those games. What could go wrong? <laughs> Transactions, once considered the purview of the mafia, have been mainstreamed. Now, this, it gets a little more personal here. Gambling relies on addiction for its business model to function. Everybody knows that. But addiction is also the business model for a huge chunk of Silicon Valley. Gambling ruins lives the way of a soul-crushing debt. Everybody knows that too. But gambling is an entertainment of uncertainty. A way of turning instability into play of pretending that the structures of life don't apply to you, that you are exempt from statistics. It's also a way of avoiding reality and avoiding the future. Gambling expresses through entertainment the basic truth of the moment. Everything, every little thing can be converted into a marketplace with winners and losers, and the house always wins. The only vice left is being broke. Whoa. The house always wins. I went to a casino uh, last year for the first time in a little while. I lost, uh, immediately lost like the 50 bucks I yeah. decided to, I could use. Um, yeah. I thought, uh, you know, I would be the exception to the rule. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it's, I was actually thinking uh, back to being a child. And I remember when the Mississippi Gaming Act was passed in 1990. And that allowed us to have uh, like riverboat casinos. And so you could have them like up the Mississippi River. So it was like went into the state, you know. And um, I, I mean, I remember being in a family reunion and everyone's in rural Louisiana. Everyone's sitting around. They're talking about it. And one of my elderly relatives said, well, we're welcoming the devil to our shores. And yeah. it I mean, it's not wrong. I mean, it, you know, back then it was like, you know, this silly thing that an elderly person said. But I don't know. I think um, – I just think we always want to underestimate the worst vices, hmm. you know, and their power over us. And we all want to be the exception to them. And, you know, the thing with gambling is like, because it's not a sub, like a physical substance, right? It's not alcohol. It's not a pill. Um, I think it's really easy to feel like you can outwit it, but it's just, it's, I don't know. We just, we really stay away from it. It just feels super, it's, it, you know, like almost like in a, like the same way I'll stay away from tarot cards. Like I'm just like <laughs> I'm not fucking stay with the away. devil. You know, I mean I just yeah. like I don't I, I that's yeah, I just don't want to get near it. Which I know probably sounds a little crazy to people, but Josh and I, when we the first night we um were away from uh our son, we left him with my parents and it's the only time we've been to a casino because we could get a really, really, really cheap hotel room at a riverboat casino in Vicksburg, Mississippi. Mm. And we walk in at like three o'clock in the afternoon. Dave, we've got like 50 bucks, right? 
And ours lasted a little longer than yours, but we still lost it. And um, I remember being super excited because we had no money. And this lady came around giving us free drinks. And uh, Josh walked up to me and he's like, you have to see, you have to, you got, you need to be a little less excited because everyone here is so sad and it's noticeable. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that was like the only, and then we just, no, I don't know. I just find gambling to be so troubling and I, and I'm mm. sorry if that sounds judgmental and gosh, I mean, as, as many people are just into this, I worry that we have listeners who are feeling really judged right now. It just, it just worries me, you know? Yeah. I also, I, I, one time I went to a, a casino from one of my brother's uh, bachelor parties. Uh, it was like Foxwoods or something in Connecticut because, you know, uh, gaming became huge in Connecticut in the 1990s or something. And I, yeah, brought 50 or 60 bucks with me and I was there for like eight hours and I could not bring myself to spend it. I felt, I actually was like angry. I was angry at myself. I was like, how, like how tight-fisted are you? Like how fearful are you? But I couldn't do it. So there's a temptation to self-righteousness. But let's face it, um, we all have our self-destructive vices. Sure. We all have ways that we escape reality, that we, um, you know, you know, from, from my biggest one is my phone. You know, and I'm I'm as addicted. It doesn't cost me. Well, I guess it does cost me. You know, the what are three hundred bucks a month I pay for my family plan. You know, for me yeah. and like all my kids and everything. But we all have ways that we're trying to um, escape uh, reality, and some will bring financial ruin uh, quicker than others. But um, we all need a little bit of relief from the grind yeah. of existence. I, right. Yeah, I just I don't know. I mean, the thing about the, no, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's okay. Yeah, I'm not saying it's healthy or good or anything. I'm just saying everyone does it. The thing that freaks me out is it's so solitary, right? Yeah. Like yeah. you're not in a casino. You're not reflecting with other people. You're not seeing people look sad. You're not having any of those experiences. If you're in Mississippi, you're not like unable to breathe from the cigarette smoke. You know, like you're. It's just yeah. you losing money on your phone. So it's 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 interesting to me because I I do have a friend uh, who. Um, and she is a does not have a gambling problem, from what I can tell. But she loves. She and her husband go to Atlantic City or Las Vegas probably four to five times a year, mm-hmm. and they always have fun. Yeah. And they always have sort of have a certain oh, yeah. amount of money that yeah, they yeah, yeah. that they yeah. come and they spend. And we there, stayed there in is, Vegas once. It was great. We didn't gamble, but it was awesome. Yeah. What I'm saying like, is that <laughs> she she has she does go to gamble <laughs> sure. and she yeah. loves it. And there's a playfulness about yeah. it. Yeah. And and I, I see that. And so I want to acknowledge that that's possible. But I, I also know that that's not the reality for most people. And I don't think I've ever walked into maybe slightly more depressing scenes. But in the ballpark of the most depressing scenes I've ever walked into is when I was on a road trip in college and we had to stop for – we wanted to get one of those all-you-can-eat buffets at a casino in Las Vegas. And we walked in and it was, you know, 11 a.m. And there's all these basically the, – the, you know, you got the blue-haired ladies with the smoking yeah. cigarettes uh, pulling the, the – um, With the, the oxygen at the, tank at the, right next to them. <laughs> And, 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 and these men just sort of sitting there, it just, it, it feels like hell's waiting room, you know, it's just, and and that's, I I know these people again, they're not in a different ontological category. I, I've gotten close enough to gambling to know that I could get sucked in like that and it's easy to, and they're just looking for some comfort and some excitement They're You know, I, I can sympathize with it. And yet to walk in there, I I kind of couldn't breathe until I got out of there and it wasn't just because of the smoke. Um, but the what does this say? The other thing, um, 
was, uh, my, I mean, I do have children, you know, who watch sports all the time. And are, now that there's all these sports betting venue ads, they're constantly asking me, what is, like, what's going what on? Is what's, yeah. What is DraftKings? What is DraftKings? Yeah. Why yeah. is, uh, you know, we're getting the who same is it? Questions. We're, we're, what are we gambling on? It's very. Um, and like our, all our answers feel like, <laughs> no offense to our Southern Baptist listeners, but like hard shell Southern Baptist, like 1972 grandma answers. You know, like when I answer them, I'm like, it's a bad, you know, it's just like this like super judgmental thing. And it's funny, like I was sitting here, I, I do want to say for me, the online gambling is very much scarier. I mean, I guess I've said this, but then the casinos, like I get the draw of the casinos. Also, like when I was a kid, we had a family member uh, win $50,000 at a casino. Woo-hoo. Yeah, and like it is like legendary like the, story in our family. You know, most what I exciting mean? thing that's ever oh, happened. Oh yeah, I mean, so I get, I totally get it. It's just, it's like they're well, they- taking this thing that that you know can be fun, can be a vice, and for me, almost making it pure vice. Like when it goes on a phone, it's like there, like there's you know, there's no Sex in the City slot machine. You know what I mean? There's no like cranky. Well, like- you, you know, it's also interesting. I watched uh, Ocean's Eleven, the remake, oh, yeah. uh, with my son, and he loved that movie. And that movie's fantastic, and so is Ocean's Thirteen. But what's going on is there. It's a huge heist, but it's morally kind of more exciting or at least much because they're stealing from a casino and it sort of senses like the house that always wins is going to lose and and we kind of have this underdog like I want to see the bad guys go down and the bad guys that's unassailably fine to portray as bad guys and that's the hard thing today to find someone who's like it's okay to say they're just bad a casino owner Al Pacino or Andy Garcia they are allowed to just be just completely screwed in every way and i i wonder what's going on there you know sam bush though he put he wrote about this and this is what this is what got to me about it i he says he says are we for this is for the mockingbird site and a uh, uh, post called risky business which we'll link to in show notes says are we really that bored is is life that mundane boredom at least the state of inactivity seems to be built into life itself when god put his feet up on the seventh day it might not be the state we are called to perpetually live in but it certainly has its time and place watching a a football game on a sunday afternoon for instance searching for excitement we miss out on what's real Perhaps we aren't meant to live on an IV drip of adrenaline. Perhaps we weren't meant to be drugged out on the latest touchdown pass, but to pause and notice our lives and the care of God amid it all. This God revealed his love in a death that was all but ignored by the nearby Roman soldiers. The soldiers, you see, did not hear his final breath of forgiveness or pause to wonder who this supposed king might really be. They were too busy gambling over his blood-stained clothes. Whoa! Okay, Mic drop. Okay, Sam. <laughs> Sam. Woo-hoo. Maybe we maybe transfer you. from Duke wow. to a more Baptist. Uh, I know. Sam's at uh, Neymar University now. Okay. <laughs> now that that I resonate with more, and I I the addiction to activity, like that's mm-hmm. something I've really been thinking a lot about recently because. Um, I think did I say this last time that it's it feels like it's been a couple years of massive overfunctioning and kind of uh, adrenaline addiction, right? Constantly having to rethink ministry, constantly yeah. having to pivot, constantly having to make decisions. You know, we also starting a new ministry, moving to a new place, um, and I'm a little. I mean, this weekend was a good example. Like, you know, Thanksgiving was what I mean. 
Thanksgiving was wonderful, and we were with a bunch of people, and it was very, it was fun. And then Friday, I got up, and I played tennis, and then we played golf, and then we went to somebody's house for dinner. And then Saturday, I got up, and we ended up kind of like laying around watching football most of the day, and I did not like it. Mm. I was not, I was not able to chill, mm-hmm. you know? Like, we finally played Settlers later that night. I was like, okay, finally we're doing something. Yes, now we're doing something. Uh... And then on Sunday, I asked Jackson, I was like, because he's also pretty, like, energetic. I was, I was like, how was yesterday for you? Did you like yesterday? Because I was feeling guilty. Like, maybe you should have driven to Miami or something. Hmm. And he's like, yesterday was great. I was like, we didn't do anything. He was, he was like, yeah, wasn't it awesome? Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, maybe it was. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But, it, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling, um, yeah, do, do I, is life intended to be an IV adrenaline drip and that's felt like my life for the last couple years and I would like to not live with my hair on fire all the time Mm. Um, but I also don't know how to necessarily get off the get off the hamster wheel Mm. you know Um, anyone can relate to that I'm so jealous of you Sarah you're like we just had our last meeting of the semester I'm like what are you talking about when I say that he's like what what? It's like, wait, you're not going to, I mean, now that you're not going to do anything, but like your kids are gone for, you're not doing anything yeah. for the next seven weeks. It's like, I, yeah. It's not that it's, long. It's four, but I it's know. still really nice. I mean, but you know, for me, I mean, yes, that's true. But what that also means is like, as the spouse of a person who has all the Sunday responsibilities of Christmas, um, I do all the you know, the shopping and the cooking and the parties. Okay, I feel the, better now. You've justified yeah, I mean, your I'm existence. Right okay. Into that world now. <laughs> I know. So it's I'm not kidding. like, it's not, yeah. Um, but I mean, well, I don't, yeah. And then I'll say, I send you guys that piece, and I, I don't want to, you know, about that's really struck me actually about Ted Lasso because I love Ted Lasso mm-hmm. and I want to be Ted Lasso. Mm-hmm. But this whole thing was about how, because um, Ted Lasso is a Christ figure, and none of us can be that, and none of us can do that. And sometimes when you're so obsessed with helping others, it's just a way to mask over dealing with your own stuff, yeah. you know. And in some ways, I felt like the past two years has has been, um, you know, a way to mask over dealing uh, with my own stuff. Yeah. Mm. And it needs to come to an end at some point. Yeah. Well, also um, for for some people, it's been that. I think for people that for whom all the all the wheels ground to a halt, they had to deal with too much they, dealing they with themselves. To yeah. with, I mean, I think. That, well, yeah. let me, guys. I want to. Don't want to end it on that note because I know that Sarah, you probably said something to your students yesterday about Advent. RJ, you preached last weekend about Advent. Uh, I'm assuming. Uh, can I Maybe. hear from the two of you what it is you said, <laughs> or give us some sense of it before we get off this uh, podcast? Um, I think for for me, you know, the message with my students is always that, like in in God's uh, eyes, they are already enough um, because they are they just inhabit environments where like they're never enough, they never work hard enough, they're never present enough. But, um, yeah, I mean, I told them the story of, um, which I only let myself talk about this movie now once a year because otherwise I'd preach about it all the time, but the battery's not included. In fact, they asked me about the movie yesterday, um, because it has that beautiful line of like the fastest way to end a miracle is to ask it what it wants. And, um, you know, I think that it's like, we're given this gift of, of, God through Jesus Christ and it's it's like asking God what God wants from us is the fastest way for it to be over 
So, yeah, just that we would like be able to, to, I don't know, bask in the thought that we are enough um, in this season of coming light is really important. So, yeah. RJ? I just said Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. You know, uh, he, he, we look back, we, we give thanks for his first coming, which was kind of this silent um, whisper, almost the secret, but his second coming will not be. He's going to come on clouds. And I, and I talked about, um, you know, the passage from last week was, uh, it's very scary in the beginning, you know, that there'll be um, upheaval in the nations and the roaring of waves and fear and foreboding, uh, you know, when the end times come. And it says, when you see all these signs, lift up your head because your redemption is near. Um, and the word uh, redemption that's, that Jesus uses there is, is a, such a richer word. Um, I don't usually do like, you know, Greek word studies or whatever. Um, but, it, but it means um, being bought back, bought, being ransomed, um, being, being li- it's the word they used when, when, when um, prisoners of war were set free or when, when slaves were, were released. You know when um, when captives were were bought oh, back and ransomed. Yeah, it's like almost like a, and I just like almost a word that is like you're you're getting your freedom papers. So so many different yeah, things, yeah, yeah. Um, and that we have nothing we have nothing to fear, and in fact everything to look forward to, and that we that the second coming is is something even more to celebrate than the the first coming, and that is as complicated and broken as our lives and our relationships and our world is, it's not forever, and Jesus is coming back, and and um, all will be made right, mm. you know. So that's um, I'm and I'm I'm ready for that. You know, uh, Jay, after I feel you like know. you've been attending Maymall University too, and I'm here for it. Oh, I, I can't I just, help it. I got my associates. I'm going for my. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I can't help but think of this a little bit in terms of in gambling terms, because what you're saying is that the stakes we're playing with house money. The stakes have been lowered, uh, yeah. and got got or you say we did a conference in Texas at one point. And we called it the risk of grace. Mm. Um. Meaning there is no risk, uh, or at least there's all risk. Uh, you you can you are free to risk everything for, yes. for other people because the stakes of you know you are you you've, you you were enough because, because God has declared you enough, not because of your performance or your yeah. ability to bet on the right horse, yeah. including when that horse is yourself. <laughs> and um, there is something I think uh, I didn't really I didn't make this connection as much. I thought Sam's illustration about the soldiers was so brilliant but when it comes to risk and it comes to god it, it's god that takes on the risk you know we're yeah. we're a bad we're a terrible bet yeah. you know um well, it's it's a, it's a beautiful thing but yet i'm so what some of what i'm a, when i approach my life i'm so afraid of risking um feelings i'm afraid of risking words i'm afraid of upsetting people i'm, afraid, I'm uh, you know that that so much fear involved going in risk. bankrupt <laughs> Yeah, I mean, money, yeah, sure. But risk, uh, in an ultimate sense, has been kind of, um, it's not yours, it's not yours to actually, um, it was never yours, you know, it was. The house always wins, but the house is God. The house is Jesus, you know, we go to the house and we gamble, but the house always wins. And the, and the house ultimately is, is on our side, you know, Vegas is not on our side, but (laughs) God is, you know. Well, um, happy Advent to you guys. Merry Christmas. I'll say it. Um, I'm grateful for you, and I hope that it goes well. If we talk, if we don't talk, whatever. Um, but Sarah, I'm especially 
thinking of you and yes. my prayers on the ninth. And I just would say, I mean, to our audience that has been so supportive and uh, I can't say it on your behalf, but I can say it as a person who's witnessed what this past year has, um, some of the fruit um, and some of the risk, some of the risk incurred by people that don't even know us, some of the, the, Mm. to be gracious to, has been uh, not just moving or encouraging, it's been uh, life uh, changing. Yeah. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. To, to, to a witness. I can't even speak for you, but yeah, I mean, it, it has, it's, it's funny. I was thinking about, um, Christmas because I always, I mean, no one's on here for clergy pro tips, but I, I do all our Christmas shopping way before Christmas. And, you know, Mockingbird did this thing where you guys bought us Christmas presents, like different people could buy us different things. And then Jane Grizzle, who is a saint among women, like wrapped them all and delivered them like Santa Claus at our house. And I, I never asked, like I never, and it's only recently occurred to me because it was such a, it was just sort of one jarring experience after another. And like, whose idea was that? And why did you do it? Like, I was like, did they do it because they assumed that I wouldn't have Christmas done, you know? I, I didn't know. Dave's shaking his head no. And it was just this insane, because I had shopped for Christmas, and then Jane showed up with, like, literally twice the amount of presents that were already under the tree. Mm. It was this insane, beautiful experience of abundance. And, mm. um, and the gifts were so specific. Like, I still have the perfume that Kate bought, your wife. Like, they felt very specific, even though it you know you could have just bought us nonsense like your parents got josh a um a grateful dead book that he was <laughs> you know like it was stuff like that and like i just i mean i feel like that sort of set the tone for the, just this sense of like um a feeling known in our grief and feeling loved and um and that i mean i can't believe we've made it through almost a year so yeah i can't believe it but we have, and, um, you know, my prayer every night continues to be that I hope that they know that we're going to be okay, and a huge part of the reason that we're going to be okay is because of people like you in our lives, so yeah. I'm very thankful. Thanks, Sarah. Love you, Sarah. Love you guys, too. Love you. All right. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Christmas. (laughs) Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at embird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. <laughs>